and we are back. Merry New Year. Happy Christmas. Whatever. I got COVID. I fought it off. I'm doing better, and I'm glad to be back here with you today. Hope you had a good New Year. If you had resolutions, and I do, I'll probably talk about them this week. I very much hope they're going well for you. But today, a really awesome interview. It's in two parts, and it's with Dr. Lee Kunla, who is a conspiracy theory expert. He hosts a podcast called The Uncover Up with his peer, Nathan Radke. He teaches political science at Humber College in Ontario, Canada. And boy, is he a good talker. We're going to start off here talking about some wacky government programs looking into weaponizing psychic abilities. But then we're going to go really deep, answering a rather thought-provoking question. You have to stay listening to the show to find out. So here he is, Dr. Lee Kunla. Oh, by the way, this is the show where no one's listening. No one cares. The show where every episode's the last episode. It's This Is Going Well, I Think, with David Cooper. And guess what? I'm David Cooper. All right, here we go. There he is. How are you? I'm well, thanks. How are you? So handsome, always. You got a haircut. Man, this is the these are the compliments I come to expect on your show. This is this is it. I was like, I knew this was gonna happen. I mean, I'm not <laughs> gay. I wish I were gay, because I feel like I'd be a lot cooler. <laughs> but if I were, I think you'd be my type. I don't know. Oh, thank you. Is that am I is it too weird to start an interview like that? I feel like I'm blushing. I feel like it's getting hot in here or something. <laughs> <laughs> I am very pink. I think it's the light, but maybe I'm also blushing. Have you ever dabbled with modeling or a poli sci was always just your discipline? You never you never ventured out to uh, capitalize off your good looks? Oh, well, that's sweet of you to, to flatter me like that. No, um, I am hilariously not photogenic. Mm. I, I don't know what it is. Like I become extremely self-conscious as soon as the like a camera points at me and I make just dumb faces. Um, there was one time when I was like young and, and full of myself and I was like, I should try this. And it just went absolutely nowhere. And so I was like, you know what? I don't need the rejection. I knew it. I knew when you were a kid, someone convinced you to try modeling. I knew you were of that class. Yeah, that someone was me. But still, you're of the class of handsomeness where modeling's a possibility. <laughs> this is not a world for me. I'm two foot eight. Uh, I look like, I don't know. I look like the face of where all the money went in Motown. I look really Jewishly. I, there's no models who look like me. None. Well, maybe that's a lack, you know? Maybe this is your end to the industry. I remember a year or two ago, everyone was like, it's Short King Spring. Did you hear about this? Are you plugged in enough with... No, I am not at all plugged in. I'm the opposite. I'm not on the TikTok and the FaceTube and everything, but my girlfriend's a little bit more plugged in than me. And all these videos and tweets and memes were going around about how it's Short King Spring. And short, handsome celebrities were very much celebrated in the media. Have you heard of the show Euphoria on HBO? There was a very short, handsome love interest. And 
all, I think it was last spring or the spring before, everyone's like, short king spring. Short king being slang for like a short guy who's who's a king, who's handsome, who's awesome, who's... Well, isn't that though like a lot of Hollywood, like um, Tom Cruise and Brad Pitt? Don't they, don't they actually have to get like little stools so that they look taller in a lot of their scenes? Yes, but they're, they're secretly short. They're not celebrated for their shortness. Right. Oh, okay. 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 And then everyone's like, oh, David, you're a short king. And I'm like, this fad is going to pass in about 30 fucking seconds. <laughs> but you capitalized at the moment, right? You got in at the ground floor. You're No, I, I, I was angry because I'm like, I've suffered for 37 years. <laughs> and you're, you're, everyone's like, oh, short guys are in now. And I'm like, fuck off. In 30 seconds, you're going to run off with some seven foot eight fucking Swedish dude. Fuck you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, sorry, too vulgar, too vulgar. <laughs> Tone it back a bit. Happens to the best of us, man. I'm telling you. I wish I had capitalized off it, but I didn't. And now short guys are out again. You never know the trends until they pass, right? Like you, you don't know that we're in a bubble until it's too late. This is, I'm always the one to you know, be the last one to buy into NFTs or, you know, the new crypto phase or whatever. Mark, please don't buy NFTs. Oh, no, 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 no. I am I am now back at the other end. Now I get to enjoy the schadenfreude of the whole I told you so stuff. But there was a moment in there, right, where I'm like, everyone's getting like crazy rich off these ridiculous JPEGs. It was sad for me because it's not only a zero-sum game, it's a negative-sum game because the electricity required to keep those networks up is huge, like billions of dollars. It is unbelievable. In fact, I just read a really fun book called Number Go Up by Zeke Fox. Uh, He's a Bloomberg financial reporter, and he did a deep dive into crypto. He was really resistant. like He didn't want to. He says it was like sending a food reviewer to review the new Taco Bell that opened. Like he was like, this is ridiculous. I totally don't want to do this. And then gets right, like goes really deep into the scene and just discovers all of this amazing stuff. And so I learned a lot, like including just the incredible power usage. But there are, I didn't even know this. There are literal uh, human trafficking rings that are based on crypto that like where people are basically what will happen is they'll answer an ad for like a an office manager or something and then they'll show up in Cambodia or Myanmar and they will be locked in these high-rise office buildings that are completely self-contained they have like you know food shopping centers and dormitories and stuff they're not allowed to leave they're beaten and they have to do scam calls ah. all day long and the scam is also based on crypto. So, yeah, I, I've gotten those emails where it's like, oh, we've seen they're always accusing me of knowing what pornography I'm looking at and exposing me. They're like, we caught you. Have you haven't gotten this one? It's like we caught you masturbating. We know what's on your computer. We have a video of it. We will send it to your boss. Haha, ha, I'm unemployed. And <laughs> and like unless you send, of course, like this much Bitcoin to this Bitcoin address. Yeah, right. But what I didn't realize is that a lot of those scammers, not all of them, are themselves victims of this human trafficking ring. It's so, it's unbelievable. With Bitcoin, the only way it's worth money is if some idiot is willing to pay more than it, more than you. So it it really is, well, in this sense, zero sum, but uh, it's negative sum because keeping the Bitcoin and all these crypto networks alive requires a lot of 
computing power and others, an effort called proof of stake, where there's an effort to shift these blockchains so that it's not really the amount of computing power and blah, 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 but they haven't really taken off. But when you strip it all away, it's only worth what some idiots willing to pay for it. And then these Bitcoin advocates will be like, well, what about securities? What about, you know, the money not backed by gold? But when you strip away a stock, let's even say it's a, worth a hundred times what its assets are worth. When you strip it all away, there's still an office building. There's still office supplies. There's still computers. There's employees and their, their willingness to work. There's like a tiny bit of backing value. Now, it may be a huge multiplier. You know, if you were to liquidate Apple right now, would you get what the stock was worth? Not even close. You get a fraction of it, but there's still something there. And then with, with fiat currency, you get, I don't know, the faith and credit of a nation. You get the globally shared delusion that currency is worth something, which is not a globally shared delusion about Bitcoin. Uh, you also have the, really the use of force, you know, the risk of jail time to pay your taxes. You know, like if I don't pay my taxes, eventually I'll go to jail. So that's really a threat. And what do I have to pay my taxes in? U.S. currency. So there are some backings there that exist as, as much as they're not much, they're something. And with Bitcoin, it's nothing. See, you're in a perfect place to understand this with your background, both in like tech and in finance. Whereas with me, I think it was John Oliver who said this, Bitcoin combines everything you don't understand about computers with everything you don't understand about finance. So I'm like... <laughs> Well, there's just a whole bunch of stuff I don't understand. And clearly smart people are getting rich off of it. So, you know, there's something, there's got to be something there. But I kept missing the boat. I kept wanting to, like, make money, but I just couldn't because I also just couldn't figure out, like, how do I buy it? How do I mine it? Like, I don't understand any of it. Anyway, so now I get to look back at the other end of it and be like, haha. I, I meant not to buy any all along, <laughs> and I told you so. So you got these blocks, uh, and they're all chained together, and you, ch you chain the blocks, and then you, you've got a coin in there, and, and then you, you, you transfer the coin, and that's how it all works. Right. Something, something. And it magically goes up, and you get super rich. Yeah, and then you, you take the block of the coins and the blockchain and, and the bits, and you got, for the bits, turn into bits of money, and that's how it works. This reminds me of how a non-financial advisor once described hedge funds, which is like, you got a banker and he plants a bunch of hedges mm -hmm. and then another banker comes and takes those hedges. And, and it's all funded because it's like in Seinfeld when um, Kramer's explaining write-offs to Jerry. He's like, these big companies, they write it off. You can just write it all off. And he's like, right, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> If only we could. And Jerry's like, you don't even know, you don't even know what a write-off is. And he's like, I don't, but these companies do, and they're writing it off. <laughs> you know, anyway, there's two things that we were to talk about today. We're going to talk about weird old CIA, U.S. military. Well, I don't know. That's what I brought in. I've just been, I'm sitting here. Obviously, this is, I'm going to show something on video, which is awesome for podcast material, right? Uh, some, some, look at this. So I'm holding up a stack of paper. Yeah. A stack of paper. And these are all now declassified, but they were once highly vintage erotica. No, no. What, sorry, what were you going to say? Yes. No. Well, in a way, if you're a nerd like me, it kind of is because these are highly, these were once highly classified uh, secret documents by CIA, DIA, Army intelligence. 
which all were like in one way or another projects looking into researching and then weaponizing psychic ability. There's a few things I want to say. I feel like when your opponent in an argument, let's say it's the U.S. government trying to cover up their wicked crimes and then maybe maybe reporters or professors who want to really dig in and get the truth. Uh, one strategy, even if you're in the wrong, is just inundate the other side with paperwork. So sometimes I feel like the U.S. government just declassifies a million sheets of paper because they're obligated to through the Freedom of Information Act or for whatever reason. And then there's like one nugget in there and they're hoping you won't latch on, you know, because they're just inundating you with paperwork. But you're the guy who actually goes through it all. I do. I do. And this is, I mean, they, 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 this is just, it depends what you're looking for. This is just nuggets all the way down. Like, it's just so incredible and unbelievable in a way. I mean, I guess it depends how cynical you are. I guess it depends on what you think the government is taking your tax dollars and spending it on. But I just find this just so remarkable. Like, okay, I have here a, uh, and what's really funny is that actually some of these were sent to me. Now, this is like, it just seems so conspiratorial, right? To get these classified documents once classified. Wait, who? The government sent them to you? No, no, no. This was actually sent. One of them was sent to uh, to me by a student. All of this stuff is totally available. So, um, if any of your listeners, you know, if you want, if you plug in the uh, project name, you'll get the you'll get access directly to the declassified CIA documents. Can we just dig deeper for a second here? Like so deep. I want to. I want to dig like really deep here, just for one second. Okay. Okay. You're German. Yes. Well, I was. I'm no longer German. Germans are so annoying about it. Yeah, but okay. Yes, I was born in Germany. I had a German citizenship. I immigrated to Canada. Now I'm Canadian. Like Germany's really strict about that. They don't want you to hold two passports. Only if you start out as a German. If you start out as somebody else, you can totally hold two passports. So my mom, who was born in England, she's got a German citizenship because the English are like, oh, we don't care. My kids who were born in Canada, they got German citizenship because the Canadians are like, yeah, sure, you can you can have dual citizenship. But I'm the only sucker who was born there. And then when I wanted another one, Germans are like, no, we're going to take your citizenship away. Interesting. So if you naturalize in Germany, they don't make you renounce your, your other passport. But if you naturalize to another country, they penalize you for it. This is really boring. No, I was just going to get you back on track. You were going to dig down into these files. Well, your fascination with government conspiracy, is it because of, you know, the East German, West German, like because before the wall fell, there was so much of this stuff going on behind the scenes, particularly in East Germany and with West Germany kind of trying their best to spy on them and it being a proxy conflict or proxy political situation for Russia and the U.S., which are the two biggest governments that have these kind of conspiracies. Like, where does your fascination with this come from? That's an interesting question. I'm I'm not sure if it's directly related to my limited, ex- like, firsthand experience of the Cold War, because I was a kid when it was going down. Um, I think more my background when I was going to school was certainly my undergrad and my MA, this was before the PhD, was about looking at the role that religion played in politics. And then in my PhD, it was a kind of pursued that to some extent. Now, my, my interest was always from a kind of a secular perspective. I wasn't religious myself, and I wasn't trying to make a theological argument. 
What I just found really interesting was how in a putatively secular world, religion and religious ideas still really shaped politics and shaped our ideas about it. And in a way, that's what's drawn me to conspiracies too. Conspiracies are often not true, but they still really impact a lot of how we understand the world, a lot of even legislation. And then, of course, there are conspiracies that are true. And what I find is I also, I learn a lot about myself. Like, okay, the first time we ever talked, I told you that I kind of had my mind blown when I looked into Bigfoot. And I do not believe that there is such a thing as a North American giant ape. But what I discovered in doing that research was that all the reasons I had held before I did the research didn't actually hold up. Like they were essentially as much based on preconceived notions and my own version of confirmation bias as people who believed in Bigfoot. And I found that really fascinating that I learned a lot about myself and I learned a lot about, I guess, the world by confronting these ideas that totally don't make any sense. I don't know if that's a good answer, but that's that's what's that's what sort of gets me into it and keeps me there. No, it, it is. I'm just thinking about how my own cognitive bias has led me to conclude there's no big, Bigfoot either. I mean, my main argument for why there's no Bigfoot is that's ridiculous. Most people don't believe that. There's no compelling evidence that I've seen. Although, have I really looked at the evidence? No, I haven't. That's it. And so here's the thing. It turns out in the in the geological record or in the fossil record, there was actually a Bigfoot. There was a nine nine to ten foot upright ape. Now it it happened to live in China, but it totally existed. So it's like it's actually even possible. And then there are pretty serious researchers, among them Jane Goodall. Now Jane Goodall does not say there's totally a you know a Bigfoot, but she has a much more nuanced approach to it. She said, I think in a National Geographic article. If this turned out to be true, it wouldn't be that surprising. And the reasons then for it maybe not being true were more based on things like, well, how big is the population? Are they carnivores? Are they herbivores? What would the kind of impact be on the biosphere if these populations existed in the numbers in which the sightings suggest that they do? And we don't see the evidence. We don't see like the caloric intake if they were vegetarians. We don't see the forests being eaten up, you know? And that's really interesting evidence as opposed to- That's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. It can't be. But And from an evolutionary biology perspective, it is possible. Like I, I, from what I'm hearing from you. Yeah. Yeah, it existed. I think now, because I wasn't prepared for this talk today, um, I think it's called Gigantopithecus. I'm not entirely sure. But I think that's what the the uh, ancient Chinese ape, I think it existed about 3 million years ago. Are you looking it up? Yeah, Gigantopithecus. Yeah. Okay. So it is possible that a giant ape could exist because one did. We have, you know, it's extinct, but we have a common ancestor. Well, I mean, it's life. So of course we have a common ancestor with it, but I imagine it's a res relatively close common ancestor. So the idea of it existing isn't actually as far-fetched as people act like it is. You're not a complete fool. It's kind of culturally just, okay, you're the, it's just a way to 
discount someone immediately and call them an idiot and not really know why. But if you actually look at it from a side, like Jane Goodall knows a thing or two about apes. Right. <laughs> uh, if she's saying, okay, it's, it's possible, looks like it didn't happen, but it's possible and it's worth taking seriously. That's kind of interesting and, and right? kind of flips the script on it. And I find this, you, you, can, you can do the same thing with UFOs. Like, again, UFOs sounds like the kind of thing that is a real fringe belief. I mean, maybe before the UAP hearings, but still it was a really fringe belief and probably nonsense. But then you actually do the research again, like with Bigfoot, I am not a believer that UFOs have landed spacecraft here, that the government is hiding them, that they have, quote unquote, non-human biologics, as David Grush put it. But actually, what's going on is often really compelling and really interesting and actually quite difficult to dismiss. Yeah. Well, we talked about the Drake equation last time, so we don't need to touch upon it again. But like, there are kind of efforts to scientifically explain, well, why haven't we been visited? Why haven't we seen them? Uh, which like, I kind of ex accept those explanations, but you, I don't just shake my head like most people and say that stuff's nonsense. No. I think the best we can do is say, we don't know, you know? Yeah, that's it. But anyway, that's what, that's what I find fascinating about this stuff. I don't know how we went from, you know, the Berlin wall to this, but we did. So that's what happens when you do conspiracy theory. It's all connected. It's all connected to that Berlin Wall. <laughs> all connected. All right. So <laughs> conspiracy theories. Yeah. There are two that we've talked about in the past, but only on commercial radio, not obviously on the show. There's the gateway process. And there's a whole set of these projects. So they, they finally kind of resolve themselves in an umbrella term called Stargate, which is what, if anybody's heard of any of this stuff, that's probably what they've heard. Gondola Wish, Grill Flame, Center Lane, Project CF, Sunstreak, Scanate. I mean, it's I love it. I love it. Yeah. That's it. That's it. So I got these documents and I've been reading them in part because um, I'm also writing a chapter on this in a book. And I just have been kind of fascinated by the research projects, which were in part really about a specific psychic phenomenon that the intelligence so it's hard because it wasn't just cia like it was dia it was army intelligence it was cia as well so and various of these projects focus on different things but basically the intelligence and security apparatus was really interested in this phenomena called remote viewing yes and the idea would be i let's imagine i'm the psychic yeah so i would be si sitting in, somewhere in an office and you would be the sender. So you would be the person who would go to some location somewhere and you would just like walk around and maybe you would try and affect sending this information to me, or maybe you would just like take in the sites. I would be in the office and I would try and determine what it was that you were seeing. And it was very often, the accounts are very impressionistic and it'd be things like, warm grass and a breeze and triangles and the building has a certain function it's important it's to the left and the utility of this was really tantalizing because you know the americans didn't have a very robust spy network and that's putting it mildly in the soviet union in the 70s right so what you could do is maybe fly some reconnaissance planes overhead and get some grainy footage of some missile silo, maybe, or maybe not. And wouldn't it be awesome 
if we could get a double agent, right? Like a Soviet spy that we turn, and then that person goes back and is and gets into all of these secret facilities and is sort of beaming this information back to American psychics who are then recording it and giving just the inside scoop on everything that the Soviets are doing. So that was the plan. And that was the sort of the tantalizing hook that gets the first the CIA and then the DIA and the army super interested in checking this stuff out. Now, is it the incompetence of the American bureaucracy that this project goes from this great idea to a $20 million spend? Like, how do we go from, okay, wouldn't it be great if we could somehow have spies project what they're seeing to our psychics so that we could know about Russian military infrastructure or intelligence infrastructure or whatever to $20 million being sent, spent by the government in, in total on these programs? Like, it's, it's wild to me. It's like, to me, it's, it's just a, a show of the of the massiveness, of the overwhelmingness, of the incompetence of the American government bureaucracy that people just sign off things, things go into motion, money gets wasted, they can't stop when they get evidence showing that it's not possible. Like, to me, that's what it speaks of. But you have a much more intimate knowledge of how it goes from uh, inception to, you know, utter failure and waste of money. Well, my initial approach is exactly like yours. I'm like, how? what is going on here? I mean, the, the bureaucrats, the CIA, the DIA, the army, these are supposed to be really sober, serious people who aren't messing around. You know, I mean, there's one thing when some, you know, bookstore owner claims that the psychic abilities are real. But when you have to keep your soldiers safe or your country safe, you're dealing with real world parameters and you don't want to make a mistake here. So like you, I'm like, what is going on here? And I think I have maybe three preliminary answers. One of them is just this constant fear because they're, they're always worried that the Soviets are doing this. So intelligence is leaking out of the Soviet Union that they're having success with with these psychic programs. And so the fear is, okay, what if this is actually legit? And then they get a leg up and they're starting to use psychics on us. We, you know, the language of the missile gap, we couldn't have a psychic gap. So this kind of Cold War logic really paved the way for a lot of projects that in hindsight are bizarre, are complete boondoggle wastes of money. But at the time when you're looking at potential global annihilation and your skepticism, and what's $20 million over 10 years if you're going to be able to keep all of world civilization from blowing itself up? I mean, it's a pittance, right? So, I think this is part of the fear of the policymakers is, okay, let's not leave any stones unturned. I mean, we're going to spend a lot more on actual missiles and on actual flyovers of the Soviet Union, but just in case there's something here, we better take a look. I guess that's one answer, right? Interesting. At least intelligence gets leaked, perhaps adversarially as part of a disinformation campaign, or perhaps it's true, but they're hearing, well, Russia's spending this money on psychics. Yeah. And China's spending this money on psychics too. They were getting intelligence from China as well. And so, exactly. So the thinking's like, well, even if this is, you know, fool's gold and goes nowhere, we've got to spend money on it too, just in case. We've got to spend money on it too, just in case. 
Now, the other thing, though, and this is something that relates back to what recently happened with the UAP hearings and things like this, is that what happens is that within the DOD and you know defense and intelligence generally, you have a variety of opinions. And some people are like, this is totally for real. And so right from the beginning, there's a split between kind of believers and skeptics. And again, with this Cold War logic, it's better to be safe than sorry, but it's often then the believers who participate in the program, they're the ones who are overseeing the program, they're the ones who are recruiting more believers into the program, and their funding depends on this, which I think itself adds as kind of, is turns into a certain kind of motivated reasoning. And so they are, it's not as though they're all just hard-nosed skeptics. There are credulous believers in the scene who are like, yeah, 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 no, this is totally legit. And not to be condescending about this, they're generally not scientists. So they kind of don't really know what might constitute legit evidence or what might be um, you know, caused by accident or even by fraud. And now this is the third thing. And this is this is actually kind of outrageous. It all starts in the 70s with SRI, the Stanford Research Institute. Now, SRI itself has this history with defense and military spending and stuff, but there's two guys there. They're physicists, Hal uh, Putoff and Russell Targ. And they are first approached by CIA. CIA is like, take a look, see if this thing is real. Well, one of the guys that they get into their research institute is Yuri Geller. He's the Israeli psychic for of spoon bending fame. Yes. Now, Geller is a like fraud, like up and down. He's a magician. He's a stage magician. But unlike other stage magicians who are like, hey, I'm doing a magic show, Geller says, hey, I have psychic abilities. They apparently came from aliens that implanted it in his brain. He doesn't really lean into that much anymore, but he was an Israeli stage magician. He used to do like birthday parties. Uh, Bar mitzvahs, weddings, corporate events, quinceañeras, he did it all. Exactly back in the day. And so he's brought into SRI and he just blows the socks off these two physicists who, of course, are just taken for a ride. But they are like, we're scientists. So we know what we're doing. And we put in all these protocols. There are other magicians, especially a guy named James Randi, but Ray Hyman, other people look at this and they're like, no, we could totally scam you. And they they even did a film and Randy takes a look at it and he's like, this is how Geller does it. And this is how Geller does it. But it's in part because of the initial experience with Geller and other people that the CIA is like, oh, there is something here. And so we better actually start funding this because they're producing results that are far above statistical, you know, guesswork. But you're saying because of who was running the program, those experiments to confirm those results may not have been set up using the scientific method so that they would get good results, but they were designed to kind of succeed. Yes. And they were also just themselves unaware of how they could be fooled. And, you know, I mean, I'm no magician. And so 
if you ever you can you, you, if you see a magician do a magic trick, it's really unbelievable. And it is really just it's magic is that is such a low hanging fruit there, you know, in terms of explaining how this incredible phenomenon has happened. And so, okay, they didn't use magic; they used psychic abilities, but as their exp- ex- as their explanation. But they got just they got totally scammed, you know. And yeah, and then that was, I think, what opened the door to CIA being like, okay, we better take a look at this and um, put some money into it. What were the su- early successes of the program that got everyone excited about it and willing to fund it even more? Well. Yuri Geller is able to do just amazing things. I mean, he is able to move uh, some kind of um, needle that's used, I think it's for um, earthquake detection, and he's able to move this, and it's like really deep underground. He is able to do amazing remote viewing, so that you you send a guy out, and then he's able to like, uh, he's able to do other things like, there's a box which has a die in it, and then you shake it up, and he's like, it's number six, it's number three. There's one where they have sort of film canisters, uh, you know, old, like, analog film, um, like for a camera, and one of them, there would be 20 of them, and one of them would have water in them, the rest of them would be empty, and he'd sort of hover his hands over them, and he'd be able to pick out which canister had the water in it. And, you know, this was like... If you if it's a one in a twenty or one in a thirty, how are you gonna how are you gonna do this? Of course, he designed those experiments. Well, that's the thing. That's the thing. Like he actually, first of all, he kind of volunteers for the program. The other subjects as well are like, hey, I heard you guys are researching psychics, and they kind of volunteer themselves as well because Geller wasn't the only one. He suggests the kinds of things that they're gonna do, and now here's the thing. James Randi, the magician I just mentioned, he gets really irritated by this whole thing because there is this sort of ethical divide amongst magicians where the honest magicians are like, I'm going to lie to you by doing a trick. And then they do a trick. And then the and then the, the kind of the bad guys, they're like, yeah, yeah, no, I have divine powers and stuff. So Randy kind of trolls Geller as Geller then goes on and you know claims that he has been shown to have these psychic abilities by researchers at the top of their game. And he gets invited onto Johnny Carson's uh, Tonight Show. And Johnny Carson, though, is was himself a ju- amateur magician, and he knows Randy. So he calls Randy up, and Randy rigs the stage equipment so that you couldn't do the trick unless you were actually psychic. And what ensues, and you can see this on YouTube, is 20 minutes of the most cringeworthy television you have ever seen as Geller tries to do his psychic routine and is totally unable to because Randy has rigged the props so that you can't fake it. I love it. So for example, the canister thing, the way that works is he would somehow jostle the table. And you can even see him try this in the in on the Tonight Show. So he's sitting there and he knocks the table with his knee. Now, what would happen is all the canisters that don't have something in it would move slightly and immediately reveal the canister that has the liquid. 
but Randy had all the canisters nailed down to the table. Now, if you were a legit psychic, this shouldn't matter, right? No. It shouldn't matter if the canisters are nailed down to the table or not. Uh, he Spoon bending, apparently, I looked it up on YouTube. It's very easy. You can bend most spoons with your thumb. But Randy then had special spoons made. Out of like thick steel or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah right? And so, and so there he is, totally unable to do all his routine. And he even goes so far as blaming the audience for the fact that it's not working. Because part of Geller's shtick was always you know, we're going to do this together. Like you guys think bend, bend. And then, you know, and then if it doesn't work, it's your fault. <laughs> yeah. It's it's an often argument used to justify religion. Like you have to believe it in order for it to be true. And it's true because you believe it. And if you don't believe it, you're guilty of, there's these um, circular arguments, right? The audience has to believe it for it to be true, but I'm also trying to prove to you that it is true but I can only prove to you that it's true if you've already believed that it's true. It's it's circular reasoning. Yeah. And people get taken in by it, right? And, and I think that's part of what then, you know, accounts for, okay, let's keep researching this. Let's keep looking for it uh, because we're getting, quote unquote, great results. Now, these were Geller's results. They did get other results with Ingo Swan and others. And then that then opens the door the CIA kind of loses interest in the late 70s, but DIA and Army kind of take over and they they go like whole hog. Like the Gateway Project, this is about like astral projection and stuff. Like to other planets or? Yeah, yeah. Like, no, it's, it's this is what I'm talking about. Like, this is where it totally, it, like just, just it, they were in their remote viewing, they were legitimately trying to go to other planets and look at alien bases at other planets. Yeah, this is what tax dollars were being spent on. Like, oh, let's let's steal the alien military equipment? You know, once you have believers with a bunch of money and no oversight, and, and you just let this kind of go on for a decade, I think this is kind of what comes out at the other end. It's like, well... I'm kind of getting bored now of just remote viewing bases in the Soviet Union. If this is legit, why don't we go remote view some alien bases on Titan or wherever? Yeah, forget about Russia. Let's go to, I don't know, Alpha Centauri. Maybe they got better nukes there or something. Exactly. Jesus. (laughs) I filed my taxes late this year. I mean, I requested an extension. I filed them late, but, you know, within the so glad that my money went there you know so glad (laughs) right now you now and now we have the money because again this is in a way still happening so there was a journalist for the new york post who did some really interesting reporting on the background of the uap hearings and this is all related to skinwalker ranch and so there are like elected officials together with people in the DOD who are hardcore believers. These are Pentagon officials, um, intelligence officials, other people, and they are spending tax dollars researching things like, I don't know, what is it? Um, Dino beaver cryptids at Skinwalker Ranch. Sorry, Dino beaver cryptids at Skinwalker. Is that even English? What does that mean? I know. 
I know, I know, but this, this is this is this is the thing that is sometimes happening behind the scenes when you get these hardcore believers who don't really need to justify what they're doing with tax dollars and are spending tax dollars on these pet projects to go find out whether interdimensional aliens are landing in Skinwalker and there are mysterious cryptids or other kinds of werewolfy type things. Is there alignment with the alt-right conspiracy of, like, lizard people and Illuminati here? Like, when you get down, does it all always kind of land there, or are we still kind of just sincerely looking for aliens? You know, I think a lot of times there's, if, if we were to put these things in a Venn diagram, you get a lot of overlap with a lot of different things. And I think you you are always dealing with sincere believers. You're also always dealing with grifters. You're also dealing with people who are not exactly sincere believers or grifters, but are taking a, you know, the taking an opportunity. I think one of the dangerous narratives that was not really expressed, I didn't really see it discussed after the UAP hearings, was this alt-right worry about the deep state. And, and this was kind of the subtext of that. It's like, oh, there are these secret programs. Congress doesn't know about it. The president doesn't know about it. But there is this kind of shadow government that's actually running what's going on. And that in our Venn diagram does really overlap with stuff like not exactly, but very close to, you know, the lizard people, Pizzagate, um, the Clinton sex trafficking, all of that kind of stuff. Got it. So when information about these wild projects that happened comes out, it can then arm conspiracy theory believing people to think, well, there is some branch of the American government that's doing shady things that we don't know about it must be the one that's out to get Trump. Like that's where, okay, we take the leap of faith. We don't have evidence for what they're doing right now because whatever's happening right now is a secret. We'll only know about it when it gets disclosed in the future. If it gets disclosed in the future, I still want to see the JFK stuff. They keep kicking the can on that one. Right. Me too. Like what was Trump doing? Reclassifying that. Like, are you kidding me? Isn't Trump supposed to be the one who takes down all the deep states bullshit? Right. Exactly. And then they reclassify the... The one fucking thing that Degenerate could have done for us was declassify the JFK stuff. But maybe it's so damaging that it really is a national security concern. Like, maybe if the information about JFK came out, it would be so damaging to the U.S. government that it could lead to, like, severe political instability. Yeah, I wonder. If that's the case, don't you think it's good to keep it a secret? Like, if it was such information that the average citizen, if they consumed it on its face, would reject the status quo, would reject the government, that would basically ruin the security of the state. If the information was that wild, isn't it better to keep it a secret? Isn't ignorance bliss on certain things that could, like, destabilize the American dollar? You know, like, isn't it better not to know? I don't know. Well, this is certainly a theory out there, right? But it's one that I'm not sure I actually, and maybe this is my own cynicism. I'm not sure how much I'm actually basing this on any kind of evidence. But I don't know. We've seen so much. You know, I mean, take stuff like, and this is going back a long time, I realize that, but take stuff like, you know, the essentially made up 
claims about weapons of mass destruction, which underlay a war. And how much destruction and how much how many lost lives on both sides, especially though in Iraq and in Afghanistan, but the the weapons of mass destruction was the second Iraq war. And you know, we're I feel like we are so cynical and we are so jaded that I don't know what information we could get anymore that would really destabilize America any more than it already is. You know, I this is always the worry that there's going to be like the piece of information that is just going to galvanize an insurrection. It's what's the it's what's often behind the argument of, well, there are aliens, but they won't tell us because if they did, you know, money would become meaningless, churches would get set on fire. So I'm not sure. There I mean, there are plausible things. I I, I could just make one up on the top of my head. That all the world leaders are in on a secret, you know, sex ring. And JFK didn't like that when he became president. He was admitted to the sex ring with all of the, you know, NATO countries. I'm just making it up, but they're the kinds of things that the alt-right says. JFK didn't like some global agreement. Something so insane that it would destabilize, like, the U.S. economy if it became public. That his own government killed him because he was trying to expose something that if the average person heard, they would. There's, there's some news that if you were to hear, you would lose faith in like the Canadian dollar that would kill, if everyone heard it, your pension would be worth nothing. You know, like there, there are plausible things. I don't necessarily have to come up with one now, but surely you must agree that there are pieces of information that- I don't know, because honestly, this is one of the moments where I feel like reality is more- unbelievable than even the fictions we could come up with. And I feel like we have, um, again, look, I'm just, I don't know, you know, I could be proven wrong tomorrow when that piece of news hits and the dollar is worth nothing. But I feel like, you know, I had this notion when the 2008 financial collapse happened and I, I was like, okay, this is it. Like, this is it. Like, we now know that the gover- that that uh, the government was essentially colluding with these massive financial institutions to defraud average Americans and others, and it's led to this global financial collapse. Now the pitchforks are going to come out, and I just kept waiting. Like honestly, like I kept I kept looking at my watch, and I'm like, they worked very hard to discredit Occupy Wall Street, and they succeeded. No, of course, there were, I think there were massive ramifications. Like, I think even stuff like QAnon today has some roots. Yeah, the Tea Party has roots in the financial collapse and the QAnon has roots in the Tea Party. Totally. So I, I do think that there, is a, that there was a big backlash to that, but it wasn't, it wasn't system destabilizing in the sense where we all kind of like woke up, looked at each other and are like, okay, we've had enough now. Right. And so I don't know, like there's been just so many horrendous revelations. Oh, yeah, I know. I'm not convincing you. <laughs> but in the history of humanity, there have been things that the citizen, the citizens of a country decided to no longer tolerate. 
and overthrew their government and did it the the very founding of the U.S. The Brits behaved in such a way that caused Americans to pick up their muskets, bunch of old crusty white dudes, and shoot at redcoats. You know, there are things in the history of civilization where the people could no longer tolerate the behavior of their government and overthrew them. This you must clearly agree with. It has happened. And so <laughs> plausibly it could happen again. And plausibly yes. information about the JFK assassination would lead the U.S. and the West at risk of that. I'm not saying anything I'm saying is true. I'm saying if it were true, would you want to know about it? Or would you rather people not know and get to keep your bank account and safety for your family and live in Canadian society, you know, with all its warts and problems that exist today, but is relatively stable. It's a time of general peace. Would you rather that, or would you rather know what happened to JFK and risk it all? If that were the alternative, I'm not saying it is, Lee. I'm just, I'm posing it as a hypothetical. If that were the alternative, it would give me some pause. And of course, there is a role for secrecy, right? We don't want the blueprints for how to make nuclear weapons just totally available to everybody. No. The guy who wrote that book, um, Anarchist Cookbook, right? Which was basically, here's how to make homemade bombs. Uh, was one of these truth fundamentalists who were like information needs should get out there and he really regretted that you know he regretted publishing that because that th that's not necessarily really useful information so i i do believe that there is i probably believe that we should have far fewer secrets than we do and i it is a compelling question do I want to know the truth above all else, uh, even if it were to come at the risk of societal collapse? If you could convince me, which I'm still not, I'm still not convinced, but. Well, you might want the truth because you might be able to handle it. But as part of you getting the truth, everyone gets the truth. If there are secrets that hold society together, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Yeah, that's an interesting concept. Yeah, I like that. I like that. Secrets that hold society together. But it justifies the keeping of secrets by shady government organizations. So it's it's double-edged here. This logic that I'm using, that should those secrets exist, the state has a right to keep them, can justify shitty behavior. Well, and it certainly does, right? And we certainly have too many secrets. I'm sort of, okay, maybe now I'm maybe the more optimistic of the two of us, because I also think that societies are more resilient when they are transparent. Yes. And I think that we are able to deal with a lot more information. Also, stuff that is, you know, supposed to be quite dangerous or scary. I think on the whole, it's better if we as a society know what's happened and we can respond adequately. This notion of an open society comes with some risks and comes with discomfort and Yet, I still am on the side of, on the whole, I think that we can, we can handle it, and it's good for us if we do know the truth. But don't transparent and open societies run the risk of non-transparent and non 
open society, closed societies that are authoritarian, that are fascist, that are, have oligarchies, that are doing shady things, that is interest is to undermine the free and open society so they can succeed and they can make more money and this kind of stuff. Don't they need to protect themselves from that? And isn't one way to operate an arm of the open society in a shady way? I think that's the argument, right? I think that's the argument. And yet without with this is again really based more on belief and disposition than any hardcore evidence. And yet I think that the best way you arm yourself is with transparency. That transparency itself actually makes a society more resilient to attacks and shenanigans and disinformation by foreign adversaries. What makes you think that? Because all the evidence and all the historical examples of open societies. <laughs> I think, for example, if we were to take, and, and again, I, I recognize the limits of this argument, but if we were to take processes which are predicated on openness, take, for example, scientific inquiry, mm -hmm. science works because you have to show your results and other people get to critique it. If the court of law is similar. You have this kind of adversarial position where you have one person says this, you know, my client's innocent, and the other person says they're guilty. And then they're both, they, they kind of fight it out in public, as it were. They have to show their receipts. And I think that while you do get miscarriages of justice and you do get crappy scientific theories that emerge, I think on the whole, it's better than the other way. I do too. I'm just, I, I'm just offering a, a counterpoint or a counter argument. Yeah, no, it's a very compelling one, you know? Um, my cat is yelling. Can you give me one sec? I just want to make sure he's okay. Yo, okay. Here's the thing. I actually have a meeting. Oh shit! How do you want to wrap this up? I don't know. Cause I'm I'm having a ton of fun here. Like this is this is where it's at, man. Like this is great. This is what I think about a lot, but no one's ever talked to me about it. Well, here let's put it. Let's do this then. We climaxed. We ended without getting any point. It was premature ejaculation of an interview. Let's just end it there and we'll pick it up next time. I mean, there's nothing more we can do. You got shit to do. And I'm sorry. It's because my boss actually scheduled this meeting. So I got to, otherwise I'd skip it. Your boss is more important than this shitty show. No, I would love to be here. This is. Lee, I, I want a free and open society. I am not in favor of like the U.S. government keeping shady secrets. I just see the state's logic for why they're so secretive. But I also see how it leads to wild abuses like these insane UFO uh, programs or these insane astral projection programs. Like that's what you get. You get waste in obscene ways and the government can be grifted and there's no consequences for it because they have bottomless money and the ability to keep secrets. But on the other side, uh, secrets can lead to stability in society when if the public were to know it, it would cause, you know, it would, it would affect your your money. It would it would affect the economy, and I see why they do it. I don't. It's a justification, but it's not necessarily one I agree with. I'm coming back. We're going to keep talking about this. All right, we will continue this. We can just pick it up and all if you want to do a taping on Monday or something. I do that. I would be free to come back on Monday. Lee, thank you for your time. We'll pick it up on Monday. Yeah. Take care, buddy. Bye bye. <laughs> Mr. Kunla. How are you, Mr. Cooper? Good. We were talking about, I gave, which I'm sure you've now had time to think about, 
<laughs> I'd reconsider my opinion. Is that it? <laughs> well, you're just like, not only are you just right out the gate more intelligent than me, oh, you're also yeah, educated in this kind of stuff. Whereas I'm an idiot and I don't have the education. So, but I think my theory or the thing I asserted or the devil's advocate I was playing. Yeah. Do you want to jump right into this, by the way? No, I was going to, I was going to ask you the same thing. Did we want to continue on? Like, so what happened, we started with something else, right? And then we got into this conversation. And I think we both got excited and animated by it. And then I, I had to go, like, uh, go to a, a stupid meeting. So I'm happy to talk about that instead. You know, I just bring you stuff because it's like, look, this is what I'm working on. I have something to say about it. But then if something organically takes over, you know, if we're both like, this is, this is more interesting, but you're the, you're the, here, you're the expert in the room here. Like for when it comes to content, like I'm just the, I'm just the, like what? I don't know. The doofus who brings like an idea. I think a quick cut of the conspiracy theory stuff, which was like us going through the motions of talking about what you know, and then me interviewing about it was, is great. But I think from it, a really interesting question came up, which was, would you want the state to keep secrets from you if it meant your general security, happiness, whatever. Does the state now have the right to do that? Yeah. And if the state has information about its own shitty behavior, that if it got out, it could destroy society, it could destroy the state's legitimacy, which would, you know, make your your RRSP in Canada or my 401k in the US <laughs> dwindle to nothing, would deflate the currency, would cause potential, you know, violence in the streets. Yeah. Does the state have the right and should the state have the right? And do you want the state to have the right? Or is there at least a part of you that sees the benefit of the state having the right to keep its secrets? And I'm not that doesn't necessarily mean the state has a right to limit your freedoms. But does the state have the right to keep secrets about its own shitty behavior? Like, let's say the U.S. is a great example. You ostensibly have the freedom of speech. And maybe one in a million people who exercise this right to freedom of speech, they murder. But the other 999,000 get to live a free life criticizing the government, doing things that they get to say, in another country, they lock you up for this. I mean, you hear Americans saying that all the time about how lovely and free they feel. And, and ostensibly, these people have their rights. But let's say, and I'm not saying this happens, although it probably does, the U.S. kills one in a million people in cold blood. Because they don't like what they have to say. Would you rather, if you were in that 999,999 people, um, would you rather that be kept a secret? Or if somehow the U.S. could prove to you that if information about their shitty behavior came out, that society would collapse. Your, your money would be worth nothing. Your deed to your house wouldn't be respected by other people. Like really, really awful things. Like your family would be destroyed. You know, your ability to get clean water could be compromised. <laughs> like, do they have a right to keep that secret as long as like they're not too bad on a general, you know, overwhelming average amount of people, their behavior is fine. Like I say shitty things about the state all the time. Nothing's ever happened to me. Maybe it'll happen to my neighbor. I don't know, but... Wouldn't it be better if I just thought the neighbor died of cancer or what? You know, like, I'm not saying I agree with that position, but I see why the state might think they have the right to do that and think that it's in the good of, of the people. That's, that was kind of what we were getting at. Or, or am I reca recapping that okay? 
that's exactly right. And, and it was in the context of JFK. Like, what if you found out about what happened to JFK? I want to know, but what if I found out and it ruined society? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's, I mean, that's it. Okay. So here's the thing. Unlike a lot of, you know, when I've come on the show before, I have evidence for stuff. I've done the research. I can point to CIA files or I can point to some kind of research that's been done and I can take a position on, you know, the stuff that we're talking about. I'm taking, I'm going to take a position now too, but I just want to flag that I'm in a different realm here where it's really speculative. And this is really comes down to like my opinion in a way, you know, and, and kind of what I think. So I'm just in a kind of a different territory. So having said that, um, I think you like the, the, the summary you gave is really interesting and it really, it, it asks a bunch of questions. Can I add one more thing to it, Lee? <laughs> of course. Suppose the state needed to be shitty to protect you from foreign actors. Sure. Like imagine being shitty and doing things like extrajudicial killings, weapons experiments, murdering their own president. I'm not saying the U.S. did that, but what if they did these things because Russia, China, their adversaries were behaving this way and the only way to protect themselves, it's like if you're an honest person, it's very hard to protect yourself from someone who's a liar at every turn. And I just mean the only way to function as a large state and hold it together is by doing shitty things. Again, this, again, a hypothetical, but now not only do we have a hypothetical where would you rather live in this world? It's also a hypothetical, well, maybe the behavior is also justified to protect you. Um, and again, these two things I'm not saying are the case in any society. Right. But if they were. If they were, right? And I think that those are some of the things I'd want to tease out in the way you've put it. Like you begin with, if there was information that if it were to come out would actually ruin society, would I want that information to come out? In that case, I am going to think about my own well-being and my family's well-being. Exactly. You know, and it's like, okay, um, I do want money to still be worth something. I, I do want to live in a democracy for, for whatever, you know, whatever problems we have with actually existing democracies, I'd still prefer to live in one than to live into some kind of totalitarian nightmare. So if those were actually the options. Which we don't know that they are, and they're probably not. Well, and that's where I would challenge you on some of it, right? Because that's why I'm not, I'm not convinced that there is that piece of information. Now, I think a lot of people in power, and I think a lot of actual conspiracy theorists as well, take that premise to be their starting point. I remember listening to truthers in 9-11, and uh, especially a guy named Charlie Veach. He's actually a really interesting character because he then changes his mind. Uh, he, he does a lot of research and changes his mind. But while he's a truther, his position is that if this were to come out, that the American government, so he is, you know, as a truther, he believes that the Twin Towers were brought down through a false flag event that the United States government essentially attacked themselves in order to justify a war. And his position was, if this comes out, there will be mass revolution. Everything is going to be burned to the ground. Now, I think a lot of people in power have that position as well. 
where they're like, listen, we got to keep certain secrets in order to protect society. And again, I am not, I'm not convinced that there is a secret out there that is so bad that people would just lose it. So last time we talked, you brought up a couple of examples. So you're like, what about revolution? Right. I mean, there has been history. You noted that, right? There has been historical change, and so that got me thinking: uh, what 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 animated, or what often animates historical change? Of course, you know, we're talking very speculatively. We're making very broad strokes here. So, any specialist in any of these fields would probably be pulling their hair out if they if they hear us. But I think, and of course, there there are a lot of different theories about this. But I think when you look at, say, a cataclysmic shift in society, say, for take for example, the Russian Revolution, it's often down to really how is my life being affected by the policies that are going down right now? Like, do I have enough to eat? Like me personally, do I have enough to eat? Am I going to be okay for the next week or the next month? One of the most devastating factors that led to the Russian Revolution had nothing to do with Soviet ideology or Bolshevik ideology, which is often how we interpret it afterwards, because they were the ones who kind of like rise out of the ashes and are like, you know, almost as the only ones left. They're like, okay, we win. <laughs> but really what was what was animating a lot of people during that period was the fact that they were going to have to send their children into a war that they knew could not be won. I mean, the the, the World War One from the Russian perspective was so catastrophic that people at the front were told things like, yeah, we don't have boots or a gun, so you just take it from one of the dead fallen soldiers out there because there's a lot. And people would write back. You know, they would write back to their families telling them how terrible the conditions were. Wow. And I think that more than any kind of ideology or even the excesses of the Romanovs and their Fabergé eggs or whatever, it's that kind of stuff. And you look at like the 1960s when there was like this mass anti-war movement. Again, this is in the context of a universal draft where like, uh-oh, I'm going to be sent to the front in Vietnam. You know, I'm some kid in college and I'm going to, or, or, you know, whatever, 18 years old, and I'm going to be sent into this hellscape. And under those conditions, people are willing to, you know, get up and change things. What I haven't seen historically is that when we have had really horrendous revelations about government overreach. Think about the kind of stuff that Snowden revealed when he absconded. You think about, you actually talked about an extrajudicial killing, you know, for for Americans who kind of speak their mind. And one example that immediately came to mind is what happened to Fred Hampton, uh, the Black Panther leader in Chicago, who was, you know, for for it's controversial, but um, there was Chicago police fired 99 bullets into the apartment where he was sleeping and he had been drugged by an FBI uh, mole, essentially. And he was he was killed. Nobody seems to care. <laughs> I mean, people care, but not enough to change their government. 
Exactly. Right. And then you have the revelations like the church committee, which is like, oh, you know, COINTELPRO existed, or later we discover things like MKUltra, all these horrendous government overreach programs that are completely outrageous. And I think people do get really cynical. I think people really uh, take it on board at some level, but I'm not convinced that there is that like that there is that pe- that nugget of information that people are going to wake up and say, okay, no, that's it. I mean, we're dealing with global climate change here, right? And even there, it's hard. Like it, the problem is almost the opposite. It's like really hard to mobilize people around really existential threats. Yeah. I mean, okay, I'm on a rant now, so you go talk. No, no, I, I like <laughs> I like your answer because when I put it my way as this extreme ultimatum, if there was one nugget of information that could destroy your security, safety, enjoyment of life, uh, your ability to provide basic necessities for your family. Yeah, then go ahead and lie to me. Yeah, I'm, I'm just... <laughs> Would you want the state to keep the secret? But the fact is the state uses this logic and there's like a legal structure in pretty much every country they can say we have to keep this a secret for quote unquote national security that's the instrument from which states use to purport that the secrets that they're keeping are of this nature you know economic stability um so i i like that when i give it to you as an extreme ultimatum which there's no proof that this exists you agree with it but then when you start to pick it apart you say well i'm not convinced such a secret would create such an existential threat um, it's really the conditions of living that have led to revolution around the world in the past, a massive upheaval. And so I like your answer because when I give it to you in a very devil's advocate kind of way, well, wouldn't you want the state to keep a secret if it could hurt you? The answer is yes. But then what I like what you do is you pick it apart. You look at the if it could hurt you component and you're not convinced that a secret of that gravity exists. And if it does, it's it's a one-off. And sure, keep it from me. But that doesn't justify not telling me what happened to JFK, not telling me what happens, you know. So I, I kind of like your answer because it doesn't shift your position at all. And it's thoughtful. And it's honestly, now that I hear someone smart answer my stupid question. I think it's a great question. I really do. I mean, it got it really had me thinking all weekend. <laughs> like when, after we talked, I was like, I gotta, because it is something that's always in the background. Like, the thing about working in the field of conspiracies is that there is this assumption that we should be allowed to know, you know? And I've often asked myself, can a conspiracy happen in a non-democratic political community? Like, is that even is that even a functional concept? Because in a way, secrets are the way we do politics and you as a, you know, non-party member or whatever, you don't have anything to say here. So it did get me thinking about challenging some of my own assumptions around this. And to to your point that you just raised too, like I do think there might be, I mean, no, I think there is a role for certain secrets. Again, like when it comes to things like, I don't know, how to make chemical and nuclear weapons. I don't think that's a good thing for everybody to know how to do, you know? No, I don't even think it's a good thing for states to know how to do, but I'm glad we leave it there. Yeah. So I yeah, like you, exactly. I would prefer if nobody knew how to do it. But I do understand the role for certain degree of secrets. I also understand the potential role, because you had mentioned earlier about um, foreign adversaries. And, 
you know, the the world of what the Germans called realpolitik, uh, real politics, is messy and dirty and scary and mean. And of course, there's going to be espionage operations that are happening right now. And it kind of defeats the purpose if you tell everybody about them. So I get the point of, you know, having a certain amount of secrecy for security. But of course, when you then build this edifice in an illegal one, in which don't worry, guys, we've got this, just, you know, you do your thing and we'll tell you what you need to know and don't need to know. You then get a whole bunch of these overreach programs. You get a whole bunch of stuff where my tax dollars should not have been spent on that. The operations turn out to be boondoggles. There's this concept the CIA has about blowback, which is the repercussions uh, to a domestic uh, um, populace of secret operations that they don't know about, Mm -hmm. which pretty much is like the whole story of Afghanistan and 9-11. You know, it's like this whole thing that kind of nobody really understood what's going on because it was kept secret from the Americans while it was happening. And I think in the last 20 years, we've really seen an example of that play out where the U.S. government gets lied to about weapons of mass destruction for a war in Iraq. A war in Iraq happens. There's no weapons of mass destruction. That's a really simple, plain example that everyone can understand. I'm sure there's... But what I don't like about this is it makes the people keeping those secrets... Sorry, it doesn't necessarily. But it gives an avenue of justification where the people keeping the secrets feel they're being altruistic. I can't tell you this to protect you. Because I care about you. You know, so shitty government behavior, if I told you about it, it wouldn't be protecting you. So i got to keep this a secret from you. I'm altruistic. I care about you. That That's an insane mental gymnastics uh, path. But I assume many politicians have taken that path. No, I, I think you're absolutely right. And I, again, this is outside of the domain of real evidence. But I, uh, my position is that most people believe that most of what they're doing is is good yeah uh, regardless of how horrendous the consequences are and how we might view those actions i think yeah people who are you know look i'm going to cut a lot of people i don't like some slack here by saying you take a lot of uh BS when you become uh you know go run for elected office and there is a certain amount of courage that that requires. And I'm married to a civil servant. You know, there's a sense in which people who do government work, be it in the bureaucracy or in the in the elected branch of it, um, they are trying to make the world better. But this in and of itself covers all kinds of people with all kinds of very dubious and dangerous schemes. I mean, the whole like the whole Cold War armament stuff was all about keeping us safe. And I really believe that the people who were the most hawkish about that really did believe that they were keeping us safe and that that was the best way to do it. So you mean during the Red Scare and and blacklisting, those people really believed that Okay, there were there you you can of course get some grifters and I think Senator McCarthy himself was actually knowingly a scammer. Like when he first starts with his list of, I here have a list of what was a 205, you know, names of people working in the State Department. That was actually a speech that he was holding that he was going to give instead of this 
kind of fire and brimstone communist or among us speech. So there, there are grifters in the system. They do take advantage of it. But by and large, people, I, I can't believe I'm saying this out loud, but people like Richard Nixon, he actually believed it. Like he was like a fervent anti-communist. He believed that communism was super bad and that anything that you did to keep Americans from falling victim to communism was justified. I think about the war on drugs. Yeah. Was it Nan Nancy Reagan was big in that? Nancy Reagan, just, just, just say no. <laughs> I think she really wanted to help parents not lose children to drugs and, and, that, and that world and the violence associated with it and the health problems associated with it. But what you end up with is a horrendous, one of the worst human rights travesties to ever happen. The U.S. has both more incarcerated people than any other country, also per capita, as a result of the war on drugs. And it's, it's sick, the outcome from it, and the waste and the spending and the loss of human life and their potential. And, but no, I think she was, I don't think she was, I mean, I don't like her, but I don't think she was a grifter. I don't think she started the war on drugs to bully minorities, you know. No. And so this then almost, I think, brings us full circle again, because then how do we how do we protect a democracy from this kind of overreach? And I think that in the past, the, ex the exposure of these kinds of programs, which were really outrageous, ended up putting kind of um, limits on the agencies that were doing them. So again, I refer to the church commission. So for those, I mean, those who don't know, this was a Senate hearing in the 70s where elected officials were like kind of waking up to what the FBI, the CIA, um, you know, all these agencies were doing. And they're like, excuse me, what were you guys doing? And so from that, there are then rules. I think one of the things you get is um, the Freedom of Information Act. Uh, another, so I, I haven't, again, I haven't prepped for exactly this, so it could, you know, but it's that kind of stuff. Another thing you get is a civilian oversight committee. So again, these are elected representatives who are now kind of, you know, what is it, eight of them, I think, who are actually charged with looking at what these secret programs are and if they are actually compatible with American values and democracy and rule of law and all of that kind of stuff. The CIA puts its hand up and say, look, we're sorry, we're not going to do this again. The FBI essentially does the same thing. They're like, we've learned our lesson. So that's where I wonder if a kind of more, more tolerance for openness and revealing our secrets isn't the best protection from these kinds of overreaches. No, I, I, I think it is. I just brought this up because I did find that interesting. Just the thought that, well, J JFK really precipitated this line of thinking for me. That seems like such a, it seems like the U.S. government knows what's going on. Why the hell else would they be kicking down the re release of these files every time they're supposed to be released? I don't know. I don't know what's in the files, but I just think that's a, a, a novel example of what could be, I'm just hypothesizing, an event that could affect the security of the state in a massive way. Okay, I give you a theory here, because of course both of us haven't seen the files. I, I think it's, is it Menninger? There's, um, there's a theory out there, I think that was the author who, who, who came up with it. Um, and his, his idea was, okay, you know what happened to JFK was actually um, the first shot that Lee Harvey Oswald fires 
is not meant for the president. It's meant for the governor who's sitting in the car with him. And Lee Harvey Oswald's got some history with him. He wanted whatever. And then the second shot is actually when the, the security detail in the car ahead of him, they kind of look, he turns around and he looks back to see what's happening. And at the same time, the car that he's sitting in zooms away and and his his being kind of pushed back like that, he misfires and he accidentally. So his sec- JFK security detail accidentally shoots the president. But why wouldn't the government want us knowing that? It's just silly. Like Because what if that guy is still alive, right? That was the one thing I was thinking. Like, what if that guy is still alive? Interesting. And this is a sort of, like, I'm spitballing here. I've got no idea, right? Oh, so it's sort of a gesture of kindness towards that guy, like we won't? Not even to that guy, but to the agency. It's like, we're not going to throw you guys under the bus, you know, as a kind of, you know, a backdoor secret agreement thing. We're just going to like, just wait till everybody who is involved at all in this is dead and gone. And then fine, we'll release it. Oh. I, I don't know. I really don't know. No, it's pl- we're just looking at plausible explanations. That's all. I mean, that's the thing. We don't know. We don't know. You know, there could be, who knows what it is, like some silly thing that the government is just, you know, we're in power. We don't want the people to know because it embarrasses us. And that's it. That's why they haven't been released. Or it's, it was, you know, lizard people. And he was a lizard person. And he got cloned by a lizard something. The other thing is, of course, that Lee Harvey Oswald was a communist who had defected to the Soviet Union twice. I mean, at the time, if this wasn't handled properly with a certain degree of secrecy, and here's where your question about secrecy is that kind of really stark opposition where the truth could, you know, cost me everything. I think one of the things that decision makers were really worried about was being forced into a logic of World War III, this time with nuclear weapons with the Soviet Union. Because if it even looked sort of like Lee Harvey Oswald was operating on behalf of the Soviets, he did defect twice to the Soviet Union, you know, and then comes back and shoots the president. Now you're locked in a kind of, well, now, you know. We have to go to war. We have to go to war. And this time the war is going to be with nukes. If you're, you know, thought experiment of, well, if it was our fault all along and yet it's very obvious from the way that we're framing this that it might have been the communists, even though it, do- it wasn't, and we don't want to go to war with them, maybe we should get rid of Oswald too and just call the whole thing, <laughs> call it a day. <laughs> That's when people got really suspicious because the Warren report was really put limits around the scope of inquiry. And basically it was like, Lee Harvey Oswald did it, right? And it was like, don't look any further and don't, and it wasn't until people read the Warren report that they started thinking, hey, wait a minute, this doesn't like, this isn't addressing a lot of the claims that I've heard about or what I'm worried about. And that's when the citizen sleuth movement gets going and starts to like try and find their own truth. But again, if you're Lyndon Johnson trying to prevent World War III, maybe you're like, don't look too hard right now because this is, we got bigger problems. Well, there's a secret that it would be altruistic to keep from you. (laughs) A secret that could start World War III. Right, exactly. Well, maybe this is the thinking. Back then, the secret was classified as if this comes out, World War III will will start. 
will have framed the Russians or the Russians will, you know, whatever it is, it'll provoke Russia into war. So this gets labeled as state saving secret and it just stays that way. So maybe that's, but now, now it wouldn't be state saving or maybe it would. But. No, exactly. So that's, that's where I'm like, I don't know why they keep it secret, but if that's the case, like if, if your secret will legit prevent World War Three with nuclear weapons, yeah, I'm okay. I'm okay. If the U.S. has a structure <laughs> to classify secrets as state-saving, really state-saving, it sounds like the assassination of JFK, if it could have provoked the Russians into a war then, a nuclear war then. it would have. I think it would have provoked the Americans into a war. I think that's the danger. Sure. Let me rephrase this. If the assassination <laughs> of JFK, at the time it happened, was a World War Three starting level secret, it would have been classified as such. And it just, you know, you know the American bureaucracy. Try changing your license class from like, you know, try, <laughs> try changing your last name after you get married in the U.S. Try doing it, the American bureaucracy. So I'm just thinking now, well, try reclassifying a secret that was once classified as prevents World War III. Maybe that's why it's so hard. And Trump was like, I don't want to do this fucking paperwork. <laughs> you know, like this, I'm not saying this, any of what we're saying is true, obviously, but it is fun to talk about. And and maybe that's it. It's just at the time they felt that secret could start World War Three, whatever it is. Nowadays, it's like a nothing burger. But because it got classified that way, then it remains classified that way as a matter of, you know, bureaucracy. That's plausible, is it not? Sure. No, totally. And and again, like, yeah, then then I'm OK with certain kind of secrets if if it if it saves if it saves planet earth yeah that may have been one at the time but it's yeah now now it's not exactly and that's the problem is that i think a lot of secrets then are sort of thought about in that way in our updated version of that and we assume that there are also people in oversight committees who are making responsible decisions on our behalf and they might be talked into this as well and i i don't know i think we're now we have a democracy so burdened with secrets that it's kind of buckling under that pressure. Um, it was really interesting during the UAP, the U, you know what the government now calls UFOs. Uh, the Na I was listening to a NASA talk where one of the presenters was talking about how if a secret, if an, if um, say an F eighteen or some kind of you know American military plane takes a picture of something like say the i you know the statue of liberty that picture is secret it's immediately just classified as secret and so this is even in other realms like with the trying to figure out what these you know what the pentagon is seeing so much of that material is just as soon as it is it is created is already classified a secret that scientists and other researchers have a real difficult time just figuring out what the heck's going on. I like that. A democracy so burdened with secrets, it's buckling under the pressure. That's a nice way to put it. Very articulate. Should we leave it at that, Lee? Is there anything more you wanted to do? No, I'm glad we got to circle back to this. This is a lot of fun. I really had me thinking. It's always fun talking to you. I appreciate you coming on the show. I, I appreciate you having me on the show. All right, let's leave it at that. Lee, your podcast is called the uncover up the uncover up we do nathan radke and i we're together we just i'm going to plug it because it was we had we very rarely have guests it's usually just nathan and i it's the nathan and lee show but we just had a guest on uh, a woman uh in philadelphia who works in public health 
and looks at disinformation and conspiracy theories as a public health menace. And it was a really fascinating conversation, um, basically addressing kind of why should I care, you know, as a general listener, if I'm not currently invested in this or that conspiracy, why should I care about what some people believe kind of nonsensey kind of things? And she had some very compelling reasons why this kind of stuff affects everybody. And I've also been thinking about that all weekend. <laughs> it was you and her. And it was like, wow. My immediate knee-jerk reaction when you tell me that is what are they? But I think the better reaction is I'm going to go listen to your show. Go listen to the show. It was fun. All right, Lee, thanks for coming here. Yeah, thanks for having me.